Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambinder here. We are going to conclude our four-part infectious disease mini-series all about COVID-19. As with the previous three parts, infectious disease experts Dr. Natasha Chita and Dr. Saman Nimatolahi from the Johns Hopkins Hospital will walk us through key principles of virology behind SARS-CoV-2, which will inform the underpinnings of what we have discussed in the last three episodes, namely emerging treatments, healthcare worker protection, and diagnosis and presentation of COVID-19. Don't forget to hop over to our Cardio Nerds COVID-19 page to see podcast episodes, YouTube videos, tutorials, and contributor profiles, and just so much more. The link to this website will be in your show notes. Finally, as are now faculty from other subspecialties covering COVID-19 units, the Cardio Nerds have been asked to prepare refresher content to help bring everyone up to speed with regards to cardiology essentials. We therefore launched a YouTube channel playlist called Cardiovascular Fundamentals. For example, check out Randerson's masterpiece on atrial fibrillation or acute decompensated heart failure by former Oslerian Balint Latsahi. Enjoy and send us your feedback as we continue to make these videos. The link to this series will also be in the show notes. Folks, we've already put the core in coronavirus. Now it's time that we put the ID in COVID. But before we do, please note that this episode was recorded on March 27th, 2020. As information rapidly evolves, please stay up to date with the most current guidelines. Please remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinion and policies of our employers. The goal is simply to learn more about cardiology, I mean, infectious disease, in the COVID era, directly from our expert micronerds. And friends, we the CardioNerds are honored to promote the incredible efforts of Get Us PPE, a nonprofit organization working hard to make sure that every healthcare worker is protected. Before we dive into our episode, here's a story from one such healthcare worker stepping up against COVID-19. Hello, I'm Seth Truger. I'm an emergency physician at Northwestern in Chicago, and I'm also a digital media editor at Gemma Network Open. PP is really important because if we are not able to keep the healthcare workers healthy, one, we're going to get other patients sick. We're going to spread coronavirus from patients in one room to patients of another. And more importantly, if healthcare workers get sick, that means that the healthcare workers are not only going to take resources away from other patients, you know, need to be in the hospital and need to be on ventilators, but it's also going to take healthcare workers out of the equation. I can't help patients if I'm at home sick. I can't help patients if I'm on a ventilator. So that's really the main thing. Keep healthcare workers protected so that we can help take care of everybody else. So please go to getusppe.org. You can donate money directly. You can donate any sort of PPE that you have. You know, if you have N95s for construction or woodworking projects, if you've got reusable gloves, if you've got reusable goggles, gowns, really any, any sort of usable medical grade equipment, especially N95s. Go check us out, getusppe.org. Keep us safe so we can keep you healthy. Take care. Okay, let's start with uh, some virology. We got to delve into this. So we are hashtag 
or at sign Cardio Nerds. And we know ACS, MAT, PCI, VT, you name it, we got an acronym for it. And we have a trial for it as well. But we're so thankful to be joined by all-star ID nerds. Or is it micro nerds? Wait, wait, no. How about infecto nerds? Womp. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay guys we're gonna work on that we're gonna work on that uh, uh in general just to catch everyone up to speed we've been following the story of our fictional patient sarah s covids throughout our cardio nerds covid coverage and she has had a rocky clinical course but before we even get started help us with the nomenclature here sars sars cov2 covid19 what is going on what is what what is the virus what is the disease do you mind helping us out Yeah, that is a a great question. So SAR stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and the COVID-2 stands for Coronavirus 2, meaning that's the 2019 novel coronavirus. And COVID-19 is meaning just coronavirus disease in 2019. And so it's an enveloped virus, and it's a positive single-stranded RNA, meaning that's a little bit different than influenza and that there's no risk for reassortment. And there's decreased risk of mutations when compared to influenza. With uh, human coronaviruses, there's actually two different families. There's alpha and beta. And a lot of the animal coronaviruses are all beta coronaviruses. And so the examples of that are including SARS-CoV-1, which is the, you know, obviously the first one that came out between 2002 to 2004. Then there's MERS that was really still is ongoing, but came out in the Middle East, given its name. And also there was an outbreak in uh, South Korea. And then now we have SARS-CoV-2, which is from obviously 2019 onward. Um, It's interesting to note that SARS-CoV-1 and 2 are slightly more similar with respect to the phylogenetic tree, which is really important for us as we begin to extrapolate data from these viruses. Important to note, the nice thing about this is that virus is that it's enveloped, meaning that both alcohol and soap can disrupt the membrane and make the virus non-infectious, which is why hand hygiene is super critical during this pandemic. Now, you may ask, how does it affect our cells? Great question. So it does use the human ACE2 receptor, and we have these receptors all throughout our body, notably in our lungs, in our heart, and also in our vascular endothelium. And within our lungs, it does replicate both in the upper and lower airway, but predominantly in the lower airway, which is why we may have higher yields and higher viral loads in the lower airway when we go look for the virus there. Ah, Saban, thank you for explaining that in such a coherent way for the simple-minded cardio nerd. So it's starting to come together. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes the disease called COVID-19. All right, but I still need some help here. Time for the birds and the bees talk. And no, no, I don't mean where do babies come from. I have a son. I've got that one down. (laughs) But where do... Where do viruses come from? I mean, we didn't have it last year. And didn't Newton teach us that nothing can be created? Like, what happened to that law of conservation of mass? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I think we sometimes forget that we're not the only ones who have viruses out there. So animals uh, also harbor a lot of viruses. And when we get into trouble is when... The mechanisms in which a virus infects an animal can use the same mechanism to infect humans. And so certain viruses will use specific receptors in animals to get into their bodies. And sometimes we have similar receptors in our bodies that allow uh, the same viruses to come to us. So in truth, we don't truly know yet where uh, SARS-CoV-2 originated from. But the theory is that it may have been linked to a seafood or live animal market in Hubei province in China. And there's some 
theory that perhaps this was initially a bat virus that then in the animal market was able to um, swap some genetic material around to the point that it was able then to make the jump to humans. There have been also been some reports of it perhaps being linked to pangolins, which are these scaled anteater type animals that are used quite a bit in China, both for their meat, which is considered a delicacy, but also in uh, Chinese medicine. However, they have isolated a, a virus in the pangolin that is, I think it's about 99% the same, but it's not 100%. So that sort of discredits some of the theory that this might have come from pangolins. But essentially, we think this probably came from animals. We think it's linked to the seafood market, but it has not been entirely clarified yet. Bats, pangolins, uh, makes me think twice about taking the family to our local zoo. But nowadays, I'm just worried about taking them to a restaurant or a gym or a school. Well, you can't do that right now anyway. We're in a lockdown. Right. So tell us about community spread. How does it jump from person to person? It's, it's hard when you're such a people person. Yeah, I think that's what has been the struggle for a lot of people because they're not used to having to limit their contact with others. But the virus uh, is spread predominantly through droplets. So that means that I'm standing next to you, I cough a bit, and the droplets that we can't see or necessarily feel come out of uh, my mouth and might then go into you. (laughs) That sounds gross, but that's how it happens. And we know that really droplet transmission can occur up to six feet, which is why you keep hearing this recommendation to stay six feet apart because really droplet transmission can occur within six feet, but after six feet becomes harder. You know, we, we know that we can isolate SARS-CoV-2 from surfaces. There's been a few studies that have shown that and shown that the virus can last for hours on certain surfaces, but we don't actually know if that's a route of transmission. Because we don't know, though, we have to be careful. And, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2, as Salman said, is most similar to SARS. And there were theoretical fomite routes of acquisition back in the SARS outbreak. Uh, So from a caution standpoint, uh, that's one of the reasons that we want people to be really careful about things like hand washing, touching services, wiping down services as well. We haven't had any proof yet that this virus can be transmitted through airborne um, methods. But again, because we don't know, we have to be careful. In SARS, there didn't seem to be a lot of airborne transmission, but it was uh, hypothesized that it had happened. And so again, I think we're drawing a lot from our SARS experience. The virus has been isolated in other types of specimens. Like it's been isolated from stool. It's actually been isolated from blood in some people, but we don't know if that that's actually a route of transmission. But the reasons that we keep saying, you know, things like stay six feet apart, that's because of droplet transmission. The way we, reasons we keep saying wash your hands and don't touch your face is both from a droplet standpoint, but also a fomite standpoint. And I think in terms of the healthcare setting, and for you guys, you cardio nerds, we want to be especially careful when there are any procedures that might aerosolize. So things like intubation, bronchoscopy, et cetera, that can cause a lot of virions to get into the air and increase risk for transmission. You touch on like kind of the difference between droplet and airborne. And I guess I never really thought too much about what actually qualified a virus or pathogen to be airborne before now. But it sounds like, like you said, aerosolization kind of makes the virus small enough that it can be airborne and just kind of suspend in the air longer. Can you kind of touch on how that actually happens? 
So that's a great question. It's it's what you're saying. You can aerosolize material in a lot of different ways. So humans can do that when they sneeze, for example, or if you're doing certain procedures that cause the virus to be released into the air. Part of it has to do with how big the virus is and if it can become airborne, but also part of it has to do whether or not it can resist um, the stress of an aerosolizing procedure. So some viruses can't resist that stress and so they won't become airborne. And some are able to and are small enough that they can that they can become airborne. That's basically how the difference between the two. But really, from our standpoint, what's most important is that with droplet, you really can't go further than six feet. With airborne, you can go much farther. Hmm, that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Dr. Cheetah, what about fomite and fecal oral transfer of the virus? Is that a, is that a thing? Yeah, you know, we just don't know. We know that we can find the virus on surfaces and we can find it in stool, but whether or not people can actually acquire the virus through touching a surface and then for for example touching their face or, you know, fecal oral route which none of us like to think about, but hey, we know it happens all the time with other stuff. We don't know. It hasn't been proven yet. And because we don't know, that's why we are still being cautious about it. Yeah, thank you, Natasha, for uh, discussing that. And I think this goes to the next point why distancing is uh, so important. And so, you know, social distancing sounds really rough. And I think it's more of like a physical distancing that is key. And like Natasha was saying, ensuring that you're about six feet apart. But this doesn't mean you can be in the same room as five other people six feet apart for about three to four hours. That kind of defeats the whole purpose of this. And we hear another term referring to flattening the curve and what does that mean? So the idea is that we want to try to spread cases of COVID-19 over time to prevent overwhelming the healthcare system so that those who do get infected may be able to get infected later when we actually do have like vaccines and treatments, things like that to be able to provide for them. And also when we do flatten the curve, fewer people can get infected in this way. We can extrapolate some of the effectiveness of this to the 1918 Spanish flu. In Philadelphia, when this flu hit that city, they did not spread out. And so they had a huge peak and lots of cases. But then when it was starting to spread to the West in St. Louis, they actually did physical distancing and we actually did see flattening of the curve there. So we do know that physical distancing does work. And so the idea is, you know, not to go out into public spaces, you know, trying not to go out to restaurants and gyms and theaters and daycare, you know, maybe trying to go to a grocery shop meeting once a week, trying to batch all your outdoor outings all at one time. But the important thing is we still need to be connected with each other and try to avoid the social isolation. So, you know, Amit calls me, you know, once a day to say hi, but I wish she actually FaceTimed me instead. So we're, uh, we're working on that a little bit. <laughs> but unfortunately, with physical distancing, we might start to see increased depression rates and increased anxiety. And so we need to be able to check up not only on our patients, but also on our friends and our loved ones as well. Saban, whether it's Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, or Google Hangouts, if Nolan is with you there today, I'm in, bro. You guys have put time on your hands since you can talk to each other so much. That's all I'll say. (laughs) 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 Really fighting the war here. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Saman, for highlighting the psychosocial aspects and repercussions that we will likely see uh, and we are seeing as a result of this pandemic. Undoubtedly, as we isolate ourselves longer, those issues will arise even for people without baseline mental disorders. So that's definitely 
really important to be mindful of. I wanted to follow up also and, and ask a little bit more about asymptomatic transmission and contagiousness. You know, we, we've heard reports of up to 80% of individuals walking out around in public are actually completely asymptomatic. And that's, in a sense, part of the scary thing about the ability to infect others. In addition to that, in terms of contagiousness, so let's say that an individual tests positive for coronavirus or even is suspected to have coronavirus based on uh, symptoms. What are your recommendations regarding management of that patient? How long should they stay out of contact with loved ones or other individuals? So that's a great question, and it's a, a question that I think is coming up a lot in the media because, as you said, the idea of someone having COVID-19, which is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, uh, and not showing any symptoms is kind of scary. Essentially, we don't know how many people are asymptomatic because right now we don't have the ability to test for that, right? If we had a lot of tests, which is what this is what happened in South Korea, we could go out and test a lot of people. And from that, we could estimate how many people are actually infected, but not having any symptoms. Unfortunately, in the US right now, we don't have that capacity. And we're drawing on data from other places. Initially, in the in the outbreak in China, it was reported that asymptomatic infections was very low. After China ramped up their response to uh, the epidemic there before it became a pandemic, they did do some wide-scale testing. And in, their, in the WHO's China report, which was done with the Chinese CDC, they report that asymptomatic cases was pretty low in the less than 10% range. However, we do have some better data from the Princess Diamond cruise ship, which if you'll remember was this cruise ship that docked outside of Japan and was quarantined for a while. Testing was done on that cruise ship, and they initially found that about uh, 32% of people who had uh, SARS-CoV-2 on the cruise ship were asymptomatic. However, the majority of those people actually went on to becoming symptomatic. So in the end, the amount of people who were asymptomatic and never developed symptoms was, I think, in the teens, I think around like 16 to 18%. We don't have more data than that. Uh, there's a lot of modeling papers that predict that there's a lot of asymptomatic carriage out there, but again, we just don't have the epidata to know the truth about it yet, and we're hopeful that we will soon. Um, in terms of contagiousness, uh, we know that you can find the virus in people's throats. Most people will continue to shed virus for up to three weeks. But whether or not that means that person's infectious is not clear. There have been some studies where they've tried to actually culture the virus at the tail end of that, and they can't culture it, which would imply that it, you're not infectious at that point. Um, the CDC says that if you're positive, and if it's been seven days since you started having symptoms, plus you've been feeling well with no symptoms for three days, then you no longer need to isolate yourself. And this is uh, based on the idea that if you're asymptomatic, you probably have a low amount of virus uh, in, your, in your nasopharynx. And there are some studies that support that, that the more severe disease you have, the more virus you seem to have. And that is the basis of CDC guidance. If you're a healthcare worker, however, because the risk is higher of you potentially transmitting to other people who may be vulnerable, you actually also need to have negative testing twice 
to uh, stop being uh, quarantined. But for the general public, it's the same criteria that I mentioned before. So we have different numbers that are thrown around in terms of uh, social isolation versus quarantine versus keeping it from your family. For example, there's this 14-day quarantine that people talk about, especially when it comes to traveling and situations such as that. But then there's this seven-day social isolation or quarantine after, let's say, a healthcare worker is infected that the CDC recommends seven days with symptom resolution, they can go back to work. So what's the difference between the 14 days and the seven days? Where do those numbers come from? So why do people that are traveling spend 14 days in isolation versus people who get the virus. Why don't they have to wait 14 days? This might have to do with the um, incubation period because once you have the virus, you've, you've cut out the incubation period. Like once you're symptomatic, right. whereas uh, if you have been exposed and you're quarantining yourself because you've been exposed, you still have seven to 10 days to develop symptoms. So the 14 days is just to see if you develop symptoms, whereas if you've already gotten the illness, you've already passed the incubation period. And so we only want you to essentially wait for you to become convalescent and then no longer, ideally, no longer shed virus, but I think the duration for that is even longer. I think is, is that the difference? That's right. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, that's it's like a Emory has like a really nice uh, informatic flow sheet diagram where they go just in that same difference. Just you did it beautifully, Amit. Difference between quarantine and isolation. Someone that has been exposed to someone and you concern as like a high risk contact, then you quarantine yourself because there was the Annals um, paper that showed that most people, ninety five percent people that were yeah. to become showing symptoms would show symptoms by around day eleven, and so. So you quarantine yourself for 14 days, and if you don't develop symptoms, then you're fine. But if you're already developing symptoms, and that's why that 7 plus 3 day has kind of been developed by the CDC. Oh, super helpful, guys. And do you think from a practical standpoint for healthcare workers, they will end up doing the two negative sequential PCRs? They probably I don't know that where you are. Like here we would yeah. because we have the we can do 500 tests a day here, and we have a less than 24 hour turnaround time at Hopkins. But that's probably okay. not going to be the case in other places. That's right. In Arizona, it's about like five days, so I think that would be very difficult to implement there. So. I'd like to wrap up with just a reflection that I've had, you know, over the last couple of weeks. A lot of people have gone into medicine and and we all know that it's a long haul medical school, residency, post uh, fellowships. And it's just uh, there's so much of a time commitment and a financial commitment to go into the field. But we all do it with a commitment and love. And, and it's something that we're really passionate about. But I think this is the first time in our generation we're really reflecting that it, it can be more of a sacrifice, even our own health. And I think that that is being uh, realized by all of us. And I think almost all of us are looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, wow, I'm ready to step up and I'm ready to do this and head on in for the patients. And um, I want to particularly thank uh, the field of infectious disease. Now, I don't want to say that I'm not thankful at all other times, and I certainly am. And we in cardiology can't do our jobs without you. You're constantly helping us out with things that we need to do to take care of our patients. But in this era, and sp specifically, infectious disease, emergency medicine, home quick care, anesthesia, and so many other fields have really stepped up to the plate to lead the charge and to take on this virus that is really threatening our existence as a health care system. So I just wanted to thank you all for all the work that you're doing, creating COVID wards, really, again, walking towards the virus while so many people are, and, and for the right reasons, staying away from the virus. So we just wanted to thank you for A, your time, but also for just everything that you're doing on the behalf of humanity.
Yeah, thank you, Dan, for uh, mentioning that. And I just wanted to emphasize that really this is a team effort. You know, for example, at uh, at Hawkins, you know, it's not only the infectious disease team that I was working on, but also epidemiologists and also occupational health. And we also interact very closely with the pulmonary critical care team and the nursing staff and the respiratory therapists and just everyone at all levels. And we're trying to create these protocols really just to um, not only protect ourselves, but then also trying to do what's best for the patient. So I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's really much a, a team effort going forward with this. I also want to give a shout out to our infection control colleagues. You know, I think we often think about ID docs as infection control, but it's such a multidisciplinary team made up of infection preventionists, nurses, epidemiologists, as Salman was saying, and pharmacists even. So, you know, those are the folks who are really leading the charge and are working tirelessly to keep health systems uh, going. And so I want to thank them for all the hard work they're doing. So they're often so busy that they can't, you know, be on social media and so aren't necessarily getting a lot of credit, but it's because they're working so hard. It's certainly nice to see how people come together at a time like this. And we are so thankful for for you, Natasha, and Saman to come together with the Cardio Nerds today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hey, CardioNerds. This is Dr. Samit Ball, and I'm a vascular and interventional radiologist at the Brooklyn Hospital Center in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the physician representative of NYC Hip Hop is Green, an organization that works on bringing a plant-based diet to the hip-hop community. What makes my heart flutter is seeing my colleagues and my patients own their own mental health with a regular meditation practice. With over 20 years of experience, I've personally seen the benefits of meditation. It's allowed me to connect more with people who I'm working with and my own patients. We connect on a lot more human level. I think there, medication and meditation meet. And in that sense, everyone's taking ownership over how they feel. One thing I think that's really important is that you're not always in control of your circumstances, but you are in control of your response to them. And when we take ownership of that, nothing can get to us. Just want to give a big shout out to the Cardio Nerds for doing an awesome show. Hope everyone stays tuned. With over, th- oh my gosh, I don't, uh, with, okay, with over 35. 350,000. I have a mathematic dyslexia disorder. <laughs> and we love you for it. <laughs> Sorry, that's definitely going to be a blooper, Dan. <laughs>